Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's Word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. And again, let me echo what Phil said. I, I give you a lot of credit because some people do say, that, hey, I came on Easter. I'm not coming the next week, too, right? That's crazy. Um, but uh, great to see you all today. Um, it's great to be in South Florida. I'm thankful that it's still a little bit cool, right? This, this is that awesome time between official season and when it gets really hot. It's my favorite time of year, right? Because the traffic's a little better. You can get a table at a restaurant, um, and it's not blazing hot. Although, for those of you new to the area, I love summer here. It's just something about it. You step outside, you know it's going to be a steam bath, and it's really fine. It's just you're used to it. It's great, and uh, we love being in South Florida. You know, South Florida is kind of the land of gated communities, isn't it? Um, I mean, we, I, I kind of like that about it myself, um, but it really, even relatively inexpensive places, you still have a gate, or at least you have a security system on your house, Right? Um, you don't just let anybody come in. I'm kind of guilty sometimes. Are you this way when the gate rings and they call your phone and they're like, you can't understand the person on the other end? And they're like, you think maybe they brought you something from Amazon, right? Or maybe somebody sent you something. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's candy. Praise God. Let's, let's let them in, right? Let's let anybody in that might bring me something good, right? And I kind of sometimes, I'm just hitting that nine. All right, whatever. I don't care. Just come in. Well, really, most of us are kind of more careful than that, aren't we? You limit who comes in your house. Uh, in the old days, everyone had porches, and everyone would just hang out, and we just, it's not that way anymore. Your home's kind of your castle right now. Please don't bother me in my home. To us introverts, praise God, right? I close that door. Leave me alone. That's why I close the door. If I wanted to talk to somebody, I'd sit out in my front, my front yard, right, which I never do. Um, but a gate is something that um, it limits what can come in, doesn't it? I mean, we do let people in who's del- who are delivering stuff for us. The, the fire department, police department have access. They can come in. Our family has access. Um, and if you really, really like someone, you give them your key card, right? You really trust them. Or you even give them your key to your house. You really trust them. But if someone calls from the gate at 2 a.m., And you don't know them, you don't let them in, do you? Someone calls at night and they're wanting to come in, you don't let them in. Why? Because you know you're the gatekeeper. You've got to protect your house and also your neighborhood. Your neighbors really get upset if you just let anybody in, right? What's the point in having a gate? You don't let anybody in your house who knocks on the door. You have some discretion there, right? Well, this morning I want to talk to you about the gatekeeper. Because we need gatekeepers in our lives, and we need to understand who we need to let in and who we don't need to let in. We're in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 26. And if you're new to our church, know that we teach through major portions of Scripture. We're in Acts right now. We took a couple of weeks hiatus for the last couple of weeks to cover uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. We're back in Acts, and we're at the early stages of church development where God is drawing some new leaders, he's developing people, there's exciting things happening. And so we're in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 26. 
word of the Lord says this. And he had come to Jerusalem. That's we're talking about Saul, later called Paul. And he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So Saul comes into town, and he wants to join the disciples, and they're saying, no way. Have you ever had that experience, maybe socially? You come to a new school, people don't know you, they don't like you maybe, they don't know if you can get in with a cool crowd. When I was first uh, graduated from college, I moved to Houston, Texas, as part of a big church, trying to get to know people, and I was gone about two out of every four Sundays, so it was hard to kind of get to know people. They had a large group of single adults. I was excited about that, and, uh, but then I, I just couldn't get in. I couldn't get to know people, you know, and I was trying to be my best fake extrovert self. Introverts, you know what that's like, right? You just kind of act like you're an extrovert uh, because that's the only way to meet people, and you go home exhausted. I'm so tired. So glad no one's living with me. Um, but then I met a guy named Robin Cox. Robin Cox was a guy that had the key, the golden key to all things single adult. He was amazing. I met friends. He brought me in so I could be thought of as not a weirdo who only came every few weeks because I worked offshore. He even was the key for me meeting my wife. He was the gatekeeper. Praise God that he opened the gate. And let me meet her and let me have friends. But that's what a gatekeeper does. Now, here's what's happening in this verse. Saul has been what? If you know the story, you've been with us, you know that Saul, one of the most brilliant religious minds in the world. One of the greatest scholars, Old Testament scholar. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. The Pharisees were the the great scholars of the day. He studied under Gamaliel, one of the most brilliant teachers in the area at the time. He's a top-level guy. So much so that he felt like he was the gatekeeper for Israel. In other words, if you were presenting something that wasn't biblical, wasn't scriptural, Saul was going to keep you out. He was going to make sure there was nobody teaching anything that was wrong, and that's what he was all about. He's a great guy, really. But then this, this thing about Jesus happened, and Saul thought that the message of Jesus, that, that was this, that what? That by grace are you saved through faith. That there's this idea that just through repentance I can receive and benefit from the grace of God. That I I don't have to keep all of these laws. And I don't have to do that for my whole life. Really, I just got to follow Jesus and please him. I thought that was total heresy. Was the gatekeeper, he dealt with it. And he dealt with it by persecuting the church. And anybody associated with the church, he kicked out. He would drag them from their homes. He would put them in prison. He would try them. He even oversaw the execution of Stephen, and you'd have to think that wouldn't have been the only one. He was so zealous that he got permission to go even outside of the area of Israel to Damascus, like 300 miles away, to get the people who were, to get to probably try to stop this movement as it moved north from Jerusalem that was discrediting, really, his people in Jerusalem and in Israel. And so he's got this permission to go drag these these church members from Damascus all the way back to Jerusalem, and that's where he encounters Jesus. He's going to oppose Jesus, and he encounters Jesus. I love this scene. Jesus stops him on the road. A bright light, a presence. He's blinded. He's on his face. Jesus is saying, Saul, why have you persecuted me? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, I don't even know who you are. And he's terrified, and they take him on into Damascus. He's blind, and 
God speaks through a vision to a man named Ananias. Ananias, I, I want you to go to this man Saul, and I want you to help him receive the gift of salvation. And I'm thinking Ananias is like, I think you've got the wrong number, Jesus. Somebody else that you want to send. Uh, I'm busy. My schedule's full. Uh, I really don't need to be killed today. Because he knows that Saul is a killer, that he is someone who's going to persecute him. But the voice of God speaks to Ananias. He's like, you need to go. And he goes. He helps Saul receive the gift of salvation, helps him regain his sight. And as a result, Saul preaches throughout Damascus, and people are responding. It's an incredible outpouring. He's very effective as a speaker. He's very well-trained, right? And he's a guy who understands that Jesus is the answer to all that the Old Testament pointed to, right? Some people don't like it, though. And the Jews of Damascus, the people that were in league with Saul when he was on his way to Damascus, they hated him, and they wanted to kill him. So they got him out of Jerusalem with a basket over the wall. And so then Saul comes to Jerusalem, and we find this verse. He attempts to join the disciples, and they're not having it. Now, it's been about three years. So you would think that they would kind of have heard the story of Saul, maybe heard this incredible testimony, maybe heard about this incredible preacher. The news moved slow at that time, but not that slow. They would have heard about him, but these are people who have been hurt by this man. They know him personally as one who had had them and their families dragged out of their homes. Imagine that. Imagine those scenes. If you watched your family be, be taken out of their home, imagine the scene of, of Saul overseeing an execution. Could you ever trust this person again? Could you ever think that they have turned and followed Jesus, the one that they were persecuting? Could someone change that much? But if you're Peter, who was probably one of the disciples at the time, wouldn't you also be thinking, you know what, I, I denied Jesus three times when it counted most. I don't even know him, he said. But Jesus didn't leave Peter out there, did he? After Jesus rose from the dead in John 22, he's on the Sea of Galilee and he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He's telling Peter, I'm restoring you. I've seen your repentance. I've seen your grief. I want you to know I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. I want you actually to lead this new church. Even though you failed at one of the most important moments in your life, you absolutely failed, Peter. But I love you. I see your repentance. I want to restore you. You have to think maybe that was in Peter's mind when Paul is showing up going, which incidentally Saul and Paul are the same person. Sometimes I use the names interchangeably. Later he'll be known as Paul exclusively. But Paul shows up. Oh, he's a killer. He's a persecutor. He's somebody that's been our enemy Oh, wait a minute, Peter, you acted as his enemy as well. So you wonder if there was something in the back of Peter's mind. Maybe God's doing something incredible. Because who better to preach the good news of Jesus than someone who knows the Old Testament so well? Someone who comes from the old guard. Someone who was a leader of Israel and of the church, I mean, of the, of the 
the, the temple, really. Maybe that thought started to happen and started to crystallize in someone's mind. And then there's a man named Barnabas that shows up in verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus, Barnabas. I love that name. In Acts chapter 4, we hear first about Barnabas and they call him the son of encouragement. Acts chapter 4, verse 36. This is the first time we hear of him. The church is just forming. Thousands of people are, are responding. The church is exploding in growth. And it says in verse uh, 36 of chapter 4, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Let me stop right there. Have you ever had a nickname? Was it a good thing? You know, if you're a baseball player, they call you Slugger. You know, uh, you're, you're good. You're good at what you do. You know, uh, you're a fighter. You're this. You're that. You're... You know, maybe you had a goofy nickname. I, I don't know. We can share them later. Let's exchange them. That'd be good. Um, I won't tell you what my sisters call me. Uh, if you're watching and listening, Linda, you know what I mean. Um, the apostles called him Barnabas, son of encouragement. And he sold a field belonging to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So early on, here's Barnabas saying, I've sold a piece of real estate, which was really important to the people of Israel, almost holy to own land. And he sold it, and he brought the proceeds to the church. That's a big, big deal. That was incredibly encouraging for the disciples who were trying to figure out, how are we going to function? And here's Barnabas encouraging, I I'm giving this money. I'm good with it. It's fine with me. The son of encouragement. Later, Barnabas would stand up for a man named Mark, who very likely wrote the, gospel, wrote the gospel of Mark. Mark had been on a missionary journey with, with uh, Paul, and um, Mark, Mark bailed. We don't know whether he got sick, got scared, decided he had enough, missed his wife, wanted some home cooking. We don't really know, but he went home. The idea from Scripture is that he was kind of weak, couldn't take it. And the next time Paul goes on a mission trip, he's like, Mark's not going. Look, man, I can't count on you. You left me when I needed you. Not going to go there again. Uh, you know, you can go to the B team, minor leagues, whatever it is, but you're not going to go with me anymore. And you know what Barnabas does? Barnabas stands up for Mark, says, no, this guy's a really good guy. You can take him or I'll take him, but we need to. This guy is somebody who God is working through. Praise God, because Mark wrote a gospel. Um, so Barnabas is the guy that kind of gets in there, investigates, figures out what's going on, makes a recommendation. He also was sent to Antioch later, and they were asking him, hey, Mark, go to Antioch and figure out, I mean, hey, Barnabas, go to, go to Antioch and figure out what's going on there. Is it of God or is it a bunch of heresy? Is it reality? Is the church at Antioch valid? And Barnabas goes and he says, yes, it's amazing. And so it says at the end of that passage in chapter 11, describes Barnabas this way. It says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. This is his reputation. He's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And he says that this guy Saul is legit. He did some kind of investigation. We don't know how, but he found out who Saul was 
He found out the stories. He determined if they were valid. And he, stu- he staked his reputation on the fact that Saul was trustworthy. What a guy. He steps up and says, I'm going to open the gate because you all trust me. I'm going to open the gate to this person. Wow, that's a big move. But let me ask you, aren't you grateful for the gatekeepers that have been in your life? That have let some things in and didn't let other things in. I'm so grateful for my mom and dad that they exposed us to things. They kept us safe from things, but they exposed us to things. We rebuilt and restored an old tent trailer. Anybody know what that is? It's a trailer that pops up and it's got... And you get to sleep on the table and on the stove and stuff. and um, Not while it's on. But it was, it was great. You know, we, we traveled. We didn't spend much money, but they exposed us to the world. We traveled all over the United States in that. They took us to the Muni Opera, the outdoor theater. They, uh, my dad would take us to other parts of town that were people living in very difficult situations. Took us to ball games, taught us how to play ball, taught us how to work time I graduated at 18, I could hunt, fish, I'd had three or four jobs, and I'd earned half the money from my very first year of university. They exposed us to things, they were the gatekeeper for things, and they always were figuring out what to let in and what to keep out. I love that about them. My dad would hold these conversations around the table about current events, and that was when Watergate was going on. Really interesting conversations that help us understand the world. He would cut out articles from the Wall Street Journal and Business Week and send them to us or give them to, hey, you need to read this. He was being the gatekeeper, telling us what we needed to know and protecting us from things that could harm us. It's an amazing thing to be a gatekeeper. To think about how do I help the person that I love and how do I protect them at the same time? That's exactly what Barnabas did. He was figuring out, how do I help this this movement, this church move and and grow and go forward, and how do I protect it from things that are going to be harmful? He was willing to take the risk. And any time you're going to expose yourself to something, there is a risk to that, isn't there? And sometimes you have to not only take risks, but you've got to go in and render aid later, right, parents? Maybe you let your kids see a movie, and you were with them, and you came home, and you had to spend four hours. Listen, I didn't know that was going to happen, but since we're there, let's talk about that. And you have, to, you have to kind of decompress them and kind of help them understand what in the world happened there. That's what a good gatekeeper does, and that's what Barnabas is doing. He's saying, I don't want us to miss what God might be doing through this man, because it might be amazing. It is scary. It is risky, but it might be amazing. And look what happened in the next verse, verse 28. Verse 28. So he, that is Saul, went in and out among them. They protected, they, they, they accepted him. So we believe you, Barnabas. Come on in, Saul. You'll be one of us. He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, that's Greek-speaking Jews, but they were, what, again, seeking to kill him which incidentally indicates he's very effective. If people want to kill you because you're talking about Jesus, you might be doing a good job, right? And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Really interesting verse. When the brothers heard about this, these would have been the disciples. And what's happening here is they're considering Saul one of them. 
He's not just a visitor. He's become a brother to them. I love that picture. Here's a guy they were afraid of, thought it might be an infiltrator, thought someone who might drag them off to prison. They count him as a brother. And not only that, but they say, you know what? We want to make sure that your life is preserved so that your ministry can continue. Imagine if they had said no to Saul. Imagine they would have missed all of his ministry and all of his future where he would write a large chunk of the New Testament, possibly as much as half of the New Testament. They would have missed that he would have gone and planted, represented them and planted churches around the known world and been an encourager to so many. Would have missed that because they didn't receive him and didn't take that risk. They didn't have Barnabas as a gatekeeper. It's an amazing thing that happens here. And because they protect him and they send him off to Tarsus, which is where he was from and hung out probably for another 10 years and developed his ministry, he was able to do all that. Because they recognize him as someone from the outside that needed to be on the inside. Let me ask you, are you a faithful gatekeeper? You see, everybody needs a gatekeeper. An organization needs a gatekeeper. A a company, a sports team needs a gatekeeper because we have to decide, does this person fit our culture? This is what hiring practices are all about. This is what college entrance process is all about. Is this person going to fit our culture? Are they going to add to it? Are they going to be a problem? Are they going to be an enemy? This is what most sports teams have what they call a culture. The Miami Heat are famous for it. There's certain types of players that work for us. There's certain types of players that don't work. We need this type of player. There's a gatekeeper. Churches need gatekeepers as well. That's why we have a statement of faith that we believe. It's called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Very straightforward. This is what we believe. And we, in our growth track, our new members experience, we teach that. This is what we believe as a church. This is what we stand on, and we're not offended if you disagree, but that's not who we are. This is what it means to follow Jesus. We have a discovery conversation during this uh, growth track or before the growth track. We, we hear your Jesus story. Are you a follower of Jesus? Tell me about the experience when he saved you. Tell me about your baptism. These are things that we have to hear in order to be a member of our church You have to receive the gift of salvation. You have to have been baptized by immersion after that. And you have to say, I I want to live a repentant life, even though I'm a sinner. And all everybody in here is. If you're not, see me afterwards, we'll solve that for you. Um, Everyone is a sinner, everyone here. But everyone's a follower of Jesus, as I wish I wasn't. I don't embrace my sin. I'm embarrassed by it. I want... I'm counting on the blood of Jesus to pay for my sin. That's who I am. That's who we are. And as we repent, we become less sinful. So we have to have a gatekeeper. And part of our gatekeeping process here at First Baptist is we have the growth track. We invite people to be a part of it. But in that, you'll find out what we're all about and if there's a fit there. And if God's calling you to be a part of this. Families also have to have gatekeepers, don't they? Just like my mom and dad determined kind of what we saw, what we didn't see. They exposed us to things, kept us from things. They invited our friends over so they could know them, right? That's one of the best things you can do, incidentally, parents, is, yeah, let's have your friends come over. 
And we can interrogate them. No, so we can know them. I used to invite my friends over. My parents would love to invite. Everybody loved to talk to my dad. We did the same with our kids. Hey, invite them over. We want to know them. Bring your friends home from college so we can really interrogate them. Um, as a family, you have to determine what's best and what's not best. As individuals, you have to determine in your life who's going to have influence over you. You always have people who have influence over you. And listen, the people who have influence over you need to have be followers of Jesus, right? The people who are your mentors. You can learn from people, professors, business associates, who aren't followers of Jesus. But spiritually, you need people in your life who are going to mentor you, right? You need peers in your life that you can help you encourage one another, that can walk along beside you. You also need people that you're leading, that you're pouring your life into, that you're the gatekeeper for. One of the greatest examples of this is, guys, if you have a daughter, and you have a daughter, we have two sons and one daughter, and the daughter I just wanted to build a fence around, actually a wall, a really high wall with razor wire on top and a moat around the outside with alligators in it and ninjas in the forest around. <laughs> Right, guys? Are you feeling me? You know what I'm saying? I just felt like uh, her daughter's smart, but I, I just didn't trust anybody around her. And when guys would be interested in her, initially I just wanted to kill them. But that is not spiritually correct. I can confess that before you right now. It shouldn't be that way. But, but I was like, I just, I just you know, I want to protect her, Right? I want to protect her. And then there's this moment when this one guy comes and you think you can see it coming. Oh, my goodness. It's about to happen. And you know she's interested in him and he's interested in her. You can feel this getting serious. You hear it in her voice. You watch them together and you can see that way she is with him. And you're like, oh, man, this is okay. I got to get ready. So what do you do? Well, you suppress the urge to kill him and you do some prayerful investigation, don't you? Just like Barnabas. I need to know who this guy is. I need to know who he is spiritually. I need to know, is he reliable? Can I trust him? Can he care for her? Does he bring out the best in her? Is he a follower of Jesus? And is he, would he die for Jesus? What? And then that moment comes when he asks for her hand. And you're thinking, ah, I can't think of any reason not to. But here's some stuff you got to do, Right? Because I'm a gatekeeper for her. I want the best for her. And then you're walking down the aisle with her, and you're going, I'm about to give this most precious, precious daughter away. And you tear up, not because you're going to miss her, but because someone else is about to take your place as gatekeeper. Someone else is about to step into her life and be more important than you. And you're happy and sad at the same time. But think about this. If I were to say to her, and I were to build that fence around her, that wall around her, I would keep her from those relationships that are going to help her be all that God wanted her to be, to allow her to reproduce, to have children of her own, to allow her to have a home of her own, to allow her to be all that she could be. Imagine what kind of a gatekeeper I would be. That'd be wicked, wouldn't it? 
in a role in gatekeeper, it's I want to bring things into our lives that are amazing. I want my daughter to have an amazing life. Sometimes as a gatekeeper, you're taking risk. But you're prayerfully investigating what's going to be best. I'm so grateful for the gatekeepers in my life. And I'm grateful for how God leads us to allow things in and to keep things out. We need to be faithful gatekeepers. We need to investigate prayerfully what God might be doing that may make us a little uncomfortable to help us see what he might want to bring into the lives of those that we love. It is risky. We have to be willing to take some risk. We also have to be ready to render aid when there's a problem. Let me ask you, is there something or somebody in your life that you need to put outside the gate? Is there something in somebody in your life and you say, you know what, I need to put more distance between me and them. I, they're, they're ruining my life. And I can't walk with Jesus with them in my life. And I need to, maybe not eliminate them completely, but I need to move them back from someone who's so close to me. That's what a gatekeeper does. But also, is there someone in your life you need to build a bridge to? You know, I talk to parents a lot, and they'll say, you know what, I, I have a son that I'm not close to. I have a daughter I can't get along with. I, I, had to make some, I had to make some strong, take some strong positions in my home because I couldn't have what they were doing inside my home. That's so hard. It's brutal. It tears our hearts out. Here's what I always encourage people to do. You may not be able to have as close a relationship as you would like, but I bet there's a place for you to have a relationship. I bet you can meet for coffee. I bet you could see them occasionally. Is there someone that you need to make a bridge to to let them back into your life on some level? Because when there's no relationship, there's no influence, right? And we have to measure that. We have to do that wisely. God, I, I'm willing to take some risk to let someone in my life because that's what we need to be as a church. We have to let people in even though they may hurt us. And we prayerfully evaluate that. Is there someone in your life you need to let in? Finally, have you been keeping Jesus out? See, sometimes we follow Jesus and, and maybe he takes us through a difficult time and we kind of have a gate at some point in our heart that we say, no, Jesus, I, I don't ever want to allow that to happen again. I'll never open myself up to you in that way again because I got hurt really bad. I want to encourage you today, is Jesus calling you to open up that gate and grant him full access? See, that's what he died to buy. He paid for the right to have full access. When we pray to receive Christ, we say, Jesus, I, I need you to forgive me of my sin. I need you to give me the innocence I could never earn. I need you, Jesus, to pay the price I couldn't pay, and I want your spirit to come into my life and live through me completely. And I'm not going to section off my life. I'm going to allow you to have full access. Sometimes as believers, we shut off areas of our lives. We need to open them back up. Jesus, I want you to have full access. Or maybe today you need to give them access for the first time. The first time. 
Maybe you've had something in your background. Maybe you, you've heard about him. But today, maybe the day that Jesus is saying, listen, I want to save you. I want you to receive the gift of salvation. You need to press number nine on the phone and allow that gate to open. Allow Jesus to come into your life. Take that risk. Because he died to pay the price to gain entry. Would you bow with me? Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to support this ministry, go to our website at fbcdelray.com. Also, click the share button so you can share this message with a friend or someone in need as we seek to know Jesus, to know others, and to make him known. We cry out, we cry out.